Hello, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Fit Farming Food Mom. I am your host, as always, Connie, and I am an ISSA certified personal trainer, a coach, a busy mom of two, and I do all this while balancing a full-time job. I am a huge health advocate, and I'm also a bodybuilding athlete, so you get to hear everything in my podcasts. Um, I'm so fortunate because I get to bring on extremely knowledgeable people, Uh, and today we get to speak with Dr. Robert Pistori. He is an amazing man and has so much knowledge to bring to the table today about sugar. So Dr. Pistori is a certified nutrition specialist, and he holds an MS in human nutrition from Eastern Michigan University, and he also has his PhD in biomedical informatics and nanomedicine and clinical informatics. Um, He has spent like a decade practicing applied biochemistry, and he treats some of the world's greatest athletes from NHL, NFL, the Olympics, endurance sports, and lots of, he treats lots of CEOs and top executives of Fortune 500 companies. So uh, today he's going to talk with us about sugar, and I am so, so excited for you to hear all the knowledge that he has to bring to the table. So without further ado, let's get going. Good morning. Hi, Connie. How are you? I am so good, and I am so, so excited. That was easy to connect with you, so that's great. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love doing anything I can to help with uh, education in the fields that I'm interested in. It's, yes, um, I love it. Thank you. Thank you, for the, thank you for the invite. It's an honor and a pleasure. Yay! Well, I'm so excited because today you're going to talk with me about sugar, which is a super interesting subject, and uh, a lot of people misunderstand how it works, so... I'm hoping that we can cover all facets of it. Absolutely. I'm definitely uh, adroit in the topic and started my career in clinical endocrinology. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely prepared for anything you want to toss my way. We can talk about how sugar can be deleterious um, in and of itself. And then secondarily, just due to the fact that it stimulates insulin production and how that can end up becoming harmful um, over time. And then, of course, everybody tried so hard to make artificial sweeteners and boy can I give you a an earful on that and I can't wait to hear it because especially I'm seeing more of a more more and more of a trend of artificial sweeteners happening with the blossom of the keto diet which yes. I'm not against keto but mm-hmm. um, now they're starting to put in a lot of um, erythritol and all sorts of different stuff into the, these new keto-friendly things, too. So that's a great thing for us to touch on as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to it. So again, thank you, Connie. Awesome. So I figured let's get start, started with some real sugar and what and how it affects us in different types of, like, real sugars. Um, so, like, for example, just straight cane sugar, mm-hmm. maybe um, some uh, agave, uh, cor- high fructose corn syrup, things like that. Absolutely. So if you want to get us rolling with that, that'd be awesome. Very cool. Yeah, definitely. So if you, would you like me to just start and launch into that? Yeah, that sounds great because I think people um, don't, another thing people don't understand is that different types of sugars have different effects on our liver and our insulin and how we, how we receive that. So um, like sucrose and fructose and things like mm-hmm. that. And so I'm sure you Perfect. have some great on that. 
Yes, I would love to jump right in on that. So, so without further ado, I'll start there. Awesome. Um, and as you know, Connie, there's different types of sugars that are considered, air quote, natural, those that are found in nature. And we have them, uh, and I can talk about how the body digests those and how we process those. So first, we have one that's extremely well known. I think every listener would understand, and that's known as sucrose. And that's what we call a disaccharide. Disaccharide is actually two specific smaller sugar units stuck together. Those are known as monosaccharides. Those are probably the best definition of what is a simple carbohydrate. Uh, They're broken down extremely quickly um, by the body, and they're building blocks for more um, complex structures known as complex carbohydrates. That's how this story actually can get even more fascinating and hopefully we can we can cut into that or segue into that topic is how some people can be so extremely sensitive that uh, one person's food could truly be another person's poison for them with regard to sugar content and even complex carbohydrate content Um, but again everybody's different and my mantra is we are all biochemically unique so sucrose is made up of glucose and fructose Um, Fructose is a very interesting uh, sugar type because it's primarily found in uh, fruit where it first got the the part of its name. Um, But what many people may not know is it's actually the highest source of fructose on the uh, human diet in the human diet right now is agave, um, which I really don't know how it became a runaway beer truck of health. (laughs) (laughs) I say the same thing. Well, there's actually more because I, you know, I'm a scientist by trade. Um, so what kind of blew me away was when I just looked at what makes up agave, I was in shock that it had more fructose than high fructose corn syrup, <laughs> which was by a, by a landslide. Um, just so everybody knows, you know, high fructose corn syrup can be around 55% fructose where agave can be 80 to 95% fructose, depending on the agave um, species, how it's processed, et cetera, et cetera. And the chemicals that are involved in its processing are pretty remarkable and and how they can potentially be harmful to the body. But that doesn't even matter, just the pure fructose. So what's interesting about fructose is it's not processed the way glucose is. It's also categorized um, as a uh, simple sugar. uh, And it spends more of its time being ushered to the liver to be converted to glucose before it can be used. Um, And what happens is it will end up becoming probably one of the number one best byproducts for triglyceride manufacture. So it helps produce these fats in our blood known as triglycerides. And we really don't want a lot of those. Um, Triglycerides are a type of fat that is found in the blood and our body will convert any calories that it doesn't need to use right away into different types of stored fuel. Um, Once we pass a glycogen storage, stored sugar in our muscle tissue, which is really low, it's less than 50 grams for an elite athlete. So imagine, imagine a general person in the, in a regular walk of life, you know, thinking they're eating just one more Krispy Kreme donut because they need to reload their glycogen stores. Um, I could tell you not even a 10th of that donut is being used as glycogen stores for their body. The rest would be utilized as fat storage primarily as a triglyceride and all that starts in the liver, but fructose does it in a much more efficient way. And it's why when I was working in cardiology for years, Whenever I had a patient, for example, in Georgia, and I always knew when it was Georgia peach season for her because she would eat 10 or 12 peaches in one day, and that's an enormous amount of um, fructose, and sure enough, her triglycerides would increase in the hundreds of points. So fructose, even from a natural source such as fruit, in excess is definitely 
fat storage perspective and also from a sugar perspective because it's a delayed explosion of sugar into your bloodstream where sucrose will break apart glucose and enter the bloodstream rapidly and you may feel crappy shortly thereafter. Fructose is kind of like setting off a timed explosion where you consume it and 20 minutes or longer later, your glucose will start to really spike. And that's when you can really start to feel awful, particularly if you're sugar sensitive. Um, there's other sugars that are directly added to foods. Glucose um, is part of the sucrose family. It definitely is added to foods and I'm seeing it more often now, which I didn't expect. It was something that happened shortly after the sugar boom, after World War II, um, sucrose and, and glucose were the predominant sugars used. Then fructose came out. I don't know how old our listeners are, but if anybody remembers the fruki, which, <laughs> which was a cookie that was sweetened with 100% fructose, like it was supposed to be something healthy. And I think, <laughs> and I think the marketing scam was something akin to it's as healthy as fruit. You know, so, <laughs> oh, no. um, yeah, it was really pretty bad. Uh, and then we have dextrose, which is another type of uh, simple sugar that we would call naturally occurring. And we primarily will find that in corn um, is the number one source. But of course, it's found in, in other plant-based materials. And it's a mono, monosaccharide, very quickly absorbed. It's basically identical to glucose. And the primary source of dextrose in um, exposure to humans is actually in the hospital environment. So when someone goes into the hospital and they're put on one of those IV bags, those drips, before any of the doctors knows what's going on, it is usually what's known as a D5 solution, which is pure dextrose with some electrolytes and some water to initiate hydration. So we have a lot of exposure to sugars and in some areas that you, you really may not um, realize. And one of the things that is frightening to me over years, starting my career in endocrinology and then segueing into um, internal medicine and spending a lot of time um, in the research area um, I have a PhD from Rutgers University, um, and my PhD is, and it's a long tongue-twisting uh, title. I'm a doctor of biomedical informatics, nanomedicine, and clinical informatics, and spent a ton of time in biomedicine, uh, biological medicine, understanding everything from drug development to disease processes and systems, and how the human body works. And my graduate degree and graduate education before that was at Eastern Michigan University, where I received my master's um, in science and human nutrition. And I, I putting those two worlds together um, and looking at the data and spending the time in clinical practice, I definitely was concerned about the levels of sugar that were in the human diet, the levels of sugar that humans were eating on a regular basis, and how you could actually have separate dialogue and clinical research just on different disease systems. Um, probably the most modern and the most controversial that I have no problem talking about because I believe in it and I'm trying to keep it and put it on the radar is that I firmly believe that our high sugar diet in all countries, in society in general, um, and the subsequent increase in insulin is the reason behind, one of the main reasons driving forces behind Alzheimer's disease and different types of age-related mental decline. So much so that I call Alzheimer's disease and precursors and similar conditions around that a form of a new type of diabetes known as diabetes type 3 um, from, from real solid data. I don't make that up. I didn't get that from reading a health food journal. This comes from real hardcore clinical science, science coming out of my alma mater, science coming out of Harvard, showing that excess insulin, that is the hormone that ushers glucose into a cell, um, it gets taxed over time and we produce more and more and more of it. And it disrupts how normal neurons will function. Mm -hmm. so, we, so we knew for years, if you were pre-diabetic, you were aging more rapidly. 
then we knew if you were type 2 diabetic, you basically were a decade older chemically than your peer of the same age. So if you were 50 and type 2 diabetic, you are actually 60 from an internal perspective, just to give a rule of thumb, because glucose has this rusting effect on us from within. It forms advanced glycation end products, harmful substances. Now, I know there may be some people that are listening saying, but I, you know, I'm counting my carbohydrates, I'm counting my macros, I have my glucose under control, I have my blood sugar tested, a hemoglobin A1C, which is a measurement of long-term glucose and how it's functioning and processed in the body. Maybe they're also testing their, their insulin levels, fasting, and their insulin levels when they consume a meal to see where they fit on, on the radar of what scientists and doctors know is good and bad. Okay they would be in the minority. Because I think you'd agree with me, Connie, the majority of society is, is uh, the walking wounded of consuming excess. Oh, oh it's horrible. My husband and I were just talking about it the other day. We were shopping at a local, local supermarket here. And uh, I couldn't believe it. The, the kids, like, these people think they're, like, feeding their children healthy. But then you got Capri Suns and you've yep. got, uh, I mean, Capri Sun, that's like, ah! It's straight sugar, you know. Like, you it's know, extremely uh, bad. Uh, you got Capri Suns, and you have all of these crackers and things, mm-hmm. and, and like these crackers might say healthy on them, but if you look at them, like the first, second, or third ingredient is almost always sugar. It's almost before. always sugar. You're so correct. Yeah. And the and the flours that they use to manufacture them are very, very close to becoming sugar themselves. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a scale that we've known about for years. There's two scales I really loved um, in my career, particularly when it was just the academic in my lecturing process when I was teaching medical doctors to keep their continuing medical education credits for their licensure. What I loved to talk about was the glycemic index and the glycemic load um, and how a carbohydrate on a scale can turn into glucose at a specific rate of time. Right. And that is something that's very concerning because there are a lot of people that are consuming these these crackers that are made from wheat or different types of, of flours, even brown rice crackers from the gluten-free camp um, or tapioca starch. And they don't realize that they actually can score higher than table sugar itself on yes. the glycemic index scale. Like buckwheat is one of the highest scoring foods, um, cornflakes, which a lot of people from my mother's generation thought that was a healthy breakfast, has a mm-hmm. glycemic index score of 81. And really modern researchers wouldn't want anyone to eat a glycemic load of anything, glycemic index rather of anything higher than 45. Right. Um, so all these air quote healthy, I mean, brown rice is 68. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so. and that's so funny that you mentioned because that was just going to come out of my mouth. So, you know, I had a client the other day and they were like, well, um, I don't eat sugar anymore, and I so t- my typical meal looks like I'll have some rice and a vegetable and probably some kind of meat. And I was like, mm-hmm. "Well, do you understand that rice is technically sugar, right?" Yes, <laughs> you know. Yes. So yes, and that and that is the scale. The glycemic index is the scale at which a food will turn into glucose um, in humans, and it's been very well studied and it's been known for years. And yes, there's things that can actually interfere with it, but the irony is in a negative way. Uh, and that's where we, we came up with the glycemic load so that you'd be able to measure the workarounds that food product companies make. For example, fructose has a very low glycemic index. 
because it turns to sugar later on and then sneak up on you. And it's like, wham, it's like you're walking down the street and someone dumps a bucket of Gatorade over the back of your head. Like you were the coach of a winning sports team and you're in shock. That's the same thing that happens to your organs and systems. When you drink that high fructose corn syrup, Capri sun, or any of these other type of beverages, you're getting that glucose spike Remember, fructose goes to the liver. It is converted into glucose and triglycerides. You get a massive glucose spike within 20 to 30 minutes after consuming it. Um, so it's a sneak attack. And it's how a lot of these companies got away with murder with their packaged foods. Mm. Yeah, unfortunate. So, yes. uh, and, you know, that's the other thing is like when people are look, when I have clients that are looking to get energy, for example, depending on what um, activity they're doing, They'll be like, well, I'm going to eat an apple or a banana, but really, you know, you're, you're looking for something that you need something a little bit faster than that, you know, um, Correct. for activity that is going to be explosive and, or, you know, you know, where I'm going with this. So. Absolutely. And you're so right. And I spend a lot of time and I still work with um, many professional athletes and uh, especially being blessed to, to be educated on a graduate level um, where there were just two major sports schools, even though I was the geek focused on academics. It was awesome to to be at Eastern Michigan University, and it's a huge baseball school. I mean, if you just look up how many baseball players and particularly pitchers came out of that institution, it's phenomenal. And then needless to say, Rutgers, I mean, I can't even remember the last Super Bowl. There wasn't an ex-Scarlet Knight you know, that was in. There was even one year on both teams. We had like four different former Scarlet Knights from um, Rutgers alum. Uh, so I was able to get a lot of analysis on these guys from graduate level all the way up into my professional career. And um, you, you, see, you do see disasters when you see speed cyclists thinking that they're going to drink a big bolus of orange juice to get the energy that they need. And on the flip side, we're learning tapping into different types of energy mechanisms may even be more, one, efficient, and two, better for your health outcomes in the long run. Mm-hmm. You know, ju- someone just looking like they were chiseled by Michelangelo doesn't mean they're super healthy inside. And please take that from someone who works with $100 million athletes. So I can tell you, I've had a lot of guys that look phenomenal and could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but they have a lot of problems behind the scenes, elevated cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, borderline diabetes, damage to certain areas. They're losing their vision at an early age. All these things that high glucose will do to the body. So when you flip their fuel source and you have them better trained to utilize fat in a better way, because fat is our friend, it can be a dynamite thing when you give the individual the right fat for their body. And then of course, teaching them about the thermogenic, basic laws of thermodynamics consuming protein um, and how protein actually costs the body calories to process. It creates its own energy system. So when you get them dialed in, of course, complex carbohydrates have a place there in those elite athletes, without a doubt, but diff- way different than what we're seeing. You know, it's not Gatorade that I'm recommending. I can tell you that. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny, though, because that's the first thing that everybody wants to go to, you know. (laughs) It is. You know, can I tell you, being a real inquisitive scientist, you know, you're talking to a guy. When I was a kid, I had to know how Lysol worked. So that's how my brain worked, right? (laughs) Seriously. So I was was just a nightmare for my parents. And when I was asked in grade school to make a volcano, I made one that really exploded. So I took, I took things literally. So when I started my first foray into understanding Gatorade was this. Think about this for a, question, a minute, and I've never seen this on the internet. Why is Gatorade not NSF sports certified for professional sports? 
but yet allowed to be used in pro sports. Just advertising. Exactly. Um, it definitely was a system that was built from within professional sports. And we all know it started with the Gators in Florida and bless their hearts. But um, well-intentioned as everyone was, they, they launched a real horrible product on society because definitely no one in normal walks of life needs to drink Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see it a lot. And I'm that parent. I hate it. I'm that parent. But um, we go to my children's soccer games and the first thing the other parents do is bring Gatorade. And then my kids are drinking it. And the whole time I'm cringing, but I'm oh, like, man, I'm yeah. trying to be a good parent and not be like, no, you can't have what those kids have. So I'm <laughs> you like, know, I'm like I totally okay, get it. just every Saturday, I guess it'll be okay. But you know, I, I'm that parent that's overanalyzing it. You know. Well, you but, know what, Connie, I also appreciate your realism and, and thank you for that. And I'm a parent as well. And it's the greatest gift in life. And it's so funny how you think when you're not a parent and then when you're a parent, how you become a collective bargainer. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I can tell you all of the top researchers in the field of human nutrition and medicine who are really public, and they have kids, they share exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you definitely don't want to deprive your kids from an experience and you want to take a moment to educate them. So I applaud you for doing that. You're doing well better than the other parents. No offense to them if they're listening. I'm just <laughs> Well, just, you, know, you know, and the thing is, 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 is there, we can want to be as healthy as we can, right? But if there comes a point of where you can push yourself to be so healthy that you are mentally unhealthy. So oh, definitely. I think that there definitely has to be a balance that happens there. And so yes. that's some place where I'm constantly juggling, but in my mm-hmm. own life too, not just with my children, but my own mm-hmm. personal body, um, mm-hmm. other people, you know, I am coaching other people. I need to make sure that we're finding a balance everywhere. So what may not be optimal could be better than, you know, what it could be. So absolutely. It, it does in some cases, logically in your mind become the lesser of the evils, but in reality become a very good, well-balanced life. And I agree with you. And I can also speak from that from personal experience like you. Um, I don't know. I believe, you know, much about some about my background and, and I, what brought me to everything that I do is I have celiac disease mm-hmm. and I was, I was not I have this mantra that I say the decade to diagnosis because it on average, it takes a human around 10 years to get diagnosed. It took me 20. So I was very, very sick Ugh. kid and I became almost orthorexic, which is food phobic based around the gluten. Cause when you find out you almost die from something that you can control, you then want to hyper control it. And it took me years to find balance and not be afraid to be very vocal at restaurants and, and talk. And I really became, you know, a scientist who would help people and then just prepare all my food myself for a period of time. And that's, that's not a healthy way to live from an emotional and social perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm glad that's over, but it, it, of course it's understandable that when someone puts a hyper-focus on that, they have that risk of, and I'm going to use that term again, orthorexia, which can fit so many paradigms. It could fit the hypercalorie counters that, Oh my God, they're two pounds over the people who monitor their weight, you know, nine times a day, those things can lead to dangerous paths. And we have to have a really healthy balance. And in my case, there's no moderation, right? No, no one can say, well, Robert, a little bit of gluten is fine. No, that'll probably give me small intestinal cancer or one of the other many things mm-hmm. the lovely celiac disease can cause. So it's still finding that balance and just being as vocal as you can and, and still celebrate and live your life. And I'm a big advocate of that. Well, and the unfortunate part of that too, um, I also cannot have gluten and it's, it was a long process before I found that out. Uh, but anyway, like you. And um, anyway, I, that's actually how I discovered you. Um, but 
I, um, between that and nu- nutritional research, you have come up multiple times. So I was like, okay, I got to seek this guy out because he's got it. You're, you're in my corner here. <laughs> uh, I am always in your corner. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, um, it, it's very hard though, to, to not become that way when you have a condition like that, because, yes. and then it's hard because you don't want people, you don't want to be that person that's like, oh, I cannot have gluten. It's not, it, I don't do gluten. But you are you tr- you literally are getting poisoned when you eat this stuff. So yes, it's a, it's a hard balance, you know. It is a hard balance, and and the reason, and I promise this segues into our topic at hand to sugar. Um, and I was talking to a doctor yesterday about this. It's it just the way I look at my case is the same optics I use when I'm looking or I'm consulting on any type of case, be it an entire sports team, be it something for a company that's developing an artificial intelligence in medicine and science, or the individual that's sitting across from me with type 2 diabetes very, very rapidly on their way to being insulin, um, chronically in need of insulin for the rest of their lives, like just burning out their beta cells on the islets of Langerhans of the pancreas where they would normally produce their insulin from 20 years of abuse to their body. Those people, I equate them to me. And, and I'm going to quote um, a gentleman that I met years, years late into his career. And he ended up being just such a kind soul to me. And I know he was raked through the mud, but he was very well-educated medical doctor. And that's the late Robert Atkins. And one of the things Robert said to me once was, he said, you know, there's some patients you may meet in life where a single stick of chewing gum is too much sugar for them. And the funny thing is, this was before I was celiac. When I then was diagnosed with celiac disease, I can't have a tiny breadcrumb. So talking to patients that have really severe borderline diabetes or they're diabetic and they want to do something right for their health, we really have to militantly control sugar. And I do the best I can to give them uh, a real fun life and, ha- and help remove the brainwashing that, you know, fun is equal to cakes and treats and sugars and pies and candy. You know, mm-hmm. that's we have to change the way we view life should not just be based around that. And that's what's so dangerous about sugar, Connie, in my opinion, is it's really um, basically a part of our culture. You know, we can't have a birthday without a birthday cake. And yes, there's better ways to do those. No one's saying don't have the cake, but um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too. If I could throw that joke out there, but, yeah. you know, but, but it's in serious conditions like mine and like people that have very bad diabetes, we really have to control their sugar. Um, Now, on a downside, Connie, and I know you know where I'm going, industry had a solution. Let's manufacture some artificial sweeteners so that it can mimic the taste of sugar and hopefully get rid of all the calorie problems and the diabetic problems associated therein. And uh, unfortunately, that, that was not the solution that they thought was going to happen. That's not what... What happened? And I think listeners are probably think I'm being really nice here that maybe they had, you know, a negative mastermind in, in their head when they were creating these evil products. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but a lot of the chemical based sugars um, substitutes are, are definitely problems. And we now have clinical science to prove, particularly in the case of, of saccharin, aspartame, acylphane, potassium or ACE-K as it's known. Um, sucralose, which is known as Splenda. And then one many people may not know, but they do appear, if you look at your labels very, very closely, there's Avantame, and then there's Neotame. Uh, These are all in the same family as um, Aspartame. 
But these, these are chemical substances that were not designed uh, to be consumed by humans. They're made in a laboratory. They were made, a lot of them were made accidentally, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. I, I know the chemistry very well. If you don't mind me geeking out for a second, aspartame is actually methyl L-alpha aspartyl L-phenylalanate. And it's Sounds a healthy. Methyl- yeah, it's, exactly, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not as complicated. It's more complicated than saying broccoli. But anyways, <laughs> so yeah. what, that chemical is a methyl ester of a combination of aspartic acid, an amino acid that's a parent com- compound that becomes another amino acids, and then phenylalanine, a dipeptide of that. Uh, but it required multiple chemical steps. So even though it's two amino acids, which you'd, you could make the argument, hey, those are natural. No, they're actually blended together, processed with fungi and bacteria. They're put in a reactor tank um, at 68 degrees Celsius for 24 hours, then dissolved in a 70% solution of ethanol and then recrystallized to make this final product, um, which is horrible. Um, So what makes this product horrible? Someone may say, but it says zero calories on my label. Um, Well, here's the problem. In clinical research, aspartame trips the sweet tasting area on the tongue known as the gustatory cells, the taste buds. I was going to say, isn't it a gustatory cell? Yes. And it sends this signal to the brain that sends a signal to the pancreas that says, hey, listen, we're about to get hit with a bolus of sugar. Anything we swallow in a, a consu- large enough consumption, we call a bolus. So I'll use more layman's terms. Pardon me for that. So a bunch of sugar is about to hit our stomach, and then it'll enter the small intestine. So let's start processing insulin. And it actually, what we found out in clinical literature is people that consume these zero-calorie artificially processed sweeteners will get a subsequent spike in insulin. Insulin is a fat storage hormone that has a job. It ushers glucose into the cell. So it could be hopefully utilized as fuel or more predominantly stored as fat. And this cycle will transpire, but guess what? No sugar showed up. So then guess what you have? You have insulin circulating in your bloodstream, lowering your normal baseline glucose, which then creates hypoglycemia, which then will make you hungry and crave some sugar. Now, if you're strong enough to not give in to that push and you have the willpower and you just say, well, I'm just going to hold off and not do that. Well, you're still in trouble. Now your body's going to signal because we love homeostasis. We love balance. So now our body's going to signal the liver to start the production of gluconeogenesis. Gluconeogenesis is manufacturing glucose from a non-glucose source. We're awesome at it. It's what happens during a fast. So we, where does that come from? Well, the body signals a cortisol mechanism to set alanine from muscles and bring it into the liver. So wait a minute, you're telling me like my large muscle groups, like my latissimus dorsi, my quadriceps, my everything I worked hard on in the gym is going to be broken down a little bit to go to the liver to produce glucose so I could then normalize my level. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. And that's how you, you get into a lot of trouble. So when I would see athletes that would be pummeling these artificial sweeteners, they don't understand they're actually reducing their gains in the gym. And slowly but surely over time, they're at risk for getting insulin resistant and actually preventing um, their weight loss efforts. And just by hyperexcretion of insulin, gaining weight. Study after study after study in a clinical research environment by top endocrinologists at top universities are saying exactly what I just said to you. And well, so, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I was, if you didn't say it, I was going to, um, but you covered everything very thoroughly right there. Um, So I, 
you know, I'm a bodybuilding athlete. And my first couple of preps, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big advocate myself for my, you know, my own family. We're pretty much paleo diet strict, you know. Um, and so we don't, you know, I've never, I've always eaten extremely clean. No artificial sugars or things like that anyways. So first couple preps, no artificial sugars, nothing super clean. Well, last prep. I started doing something because everybody else does it. Right. And my coach, (laughs) my coach, uh, she was like, no, just do this. No, you know, I started incorporating some artificial sugars into my food because I was so hungry and I just needed to eat something that I enjoyed Mm. that I started bringing in some sucralose and things like that. And let me tell you a little something coming out of that prep was the worst time of my life I gained the most weight wow and I had the worst sugar cravings Mm -hmm. ever and I've never had that before and I feel that it's because exactly that had I mean there were other factors involved obviously Mm -hmm. there was a lot going on there but I feel that that was one of the things that contributed to that um was the fact that my body had want was trying to get me you know afterwards from being so low I was binging on sugar because, yes. you know, my body was like, oh, my gosh, you're low. We need to get you up there, you know. So, 100%. That's um, exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. So um, it, I, I'm happy that you talked about that because I feel like that actually contributed to me having more of a struggle than it helped me out. Without a doubt. And Splenda is a very interesting substance because what people may not realize is there was there was i think there were some decent intentions there by the researchers they said here's what we're going to do we're going to start with a sugar molecule forget the whole chemistry lab experiment i just bored your audience with about aspartame (laughs) Uh, let's start with a regular sugar molecule and this time we're going to replace three hydrogen oxygens three hydrogen oxygen groups with just chlorine and that way the human body can absorb it um, so they thought, uh, and, and we're going to be all fine and dandy and it'll just taste sweet. And what we learned is if you radioactively dye sucrose, sucralose, um, Splenda, so to speak, and you then consume it and put those people in MRIs, we find it in their body. Um, I actually had a student that did an MRI, did this exact experiment and found it um, harboring in the thymus gland, which plays a role in our immune system and how our immune system functions. Um, that was kind of scary. And then we found a lot of it in the gastrointestinal tract. And I found out in my um, bodybuilding group of athletes that were in prep, that were hyper-consuming sucralose out of all the other artificial sweeteners, they would have, if you don't mind me saying, um, I know it's early in the morning from where I'm broadcasting to talk about this, but they would have frequently loose stools. They would have diarrhea. Mm-hmm. due to the chlorine, uh, chlorine atoms and this chloride increase in the colon causes a rush of water and a loose bowel movements. And as you know, that's just not good. It throws off your electrolyte balance. You feel like crap. You can't get your pump. You can't exercise as, as effectively as you normally would. And it results in you just feeling flat and, and looking flat before a competition. So it, it really is a nasty, um, a nasty artificial sweetener. And I'm so glad you're off it. Uh, yeah, me too. And it's a real, like, and now looking back at it in hindsight, I'm like, I was totally against that for years and years. How could I get so desperate that I was like, yeah, put some sugar-free caramel syrup in a black coffee. That sounds great. You know, like, like, oh, man. 
we went to San Francisco yeah. and we went to Garadelli. I took the kids there again. Oh. It's a, you know, it's a, you got to enjoy experiences too, you know? And mm-hmm. so I take them there and they're all eating these giant like brownie sundaes. And I was like, can I just have a black coffee with some sugar-free <laughs> caramel syrup? And that was great, except for, you This blended tech, yeah. Yeah, I did. I completely killed my, my gut off too, I believe. And how, I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, I know it's there's a lot of research backing up. It's super hard on your gut bacteria and your gut flora as well. It, so. it, it is absolutely hard on the gut. It does throw off the, the, our gastrointestinal proper species of the microbiome, which we're really still working on. You know, I, I was very lucky that Rutgers has like a terabyte of data just on the microbiome. And we really were cutting edge um, on our work there. And I talk a lot about, you know, the levels of firmaticutes, which are specific parent species of bacteria that are found in more overweight people. And it's my humble opinion, looking at the data and doing something that I call um, a DNA mapping of the gastrointestinal tract on a lot of my athletes, where I can actually get a DNA analysis of all the species that are in their gut. And when I see higher levels of firmaticutes, it definitely correlates with products such as Splenda. And what, why is that so deleterious? Well, firmaticutes are one of the parent species of um, bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract. They're anaerobic. They can live in a non-oxygen environment, but they actually extract more calories from certain foods than we are humanly able to. And I hope I'm making sense here. So yeah. in English, if a package for a product says it's got four grams of fiber and 20 grams of carbohydrates and all these other ingredients and it's 200 calories and you eat that and you think you're getting 200 calories, you may actually be getting around 230 or potentially 224 to 230 because this species of bacteria can unfold and digest and turn into an actual calorie source for you, types of plant-based fibers and fibers added to food from food production that normally would just be used as fiber in your body. So I found that very fascinating because it totally changes a calorie as a calorie as a calorie, and it turns, mm-hmm. that, it turns that conversation upside down when you have higher levels of these bacteria present. Um, so I just thought that was really fascinating that it is indeed correlated um, with Splenda consumption in my humble clinical scientific opinion. I, and, and that's actually very interesting, too, um, because the calories in, calories out thing has become a big argument as well in the fitness community. And um, it's just one thing that I mean, I, I understand using it as a guideline, but it's just another one of those things where I think everybody is individual. And so you have to kind of go by that just like you said with the stick of gum you know so absolutely I, I i i get a lot of people saying well how many calories is this and i and i'm not sure i want to place all my weight on that as a coach myself so anyway um moving on so yeah. splenda is hard on the gut is there anything else that it causes well i mean that's what's interesting is we do have some data and a lot of it is not published i think because there's I mean, there's some data that's out there that is published, but then those, those researchers are attacked because we're talking about agribusiness and not agriculture. And a lot of these companies are all spawned from either a major food company that runs the planet or a major pharma, uh, pharmaceutical company that have been billions and billions of dollars behind them. And they, they try to be intimidating. And I'm not trying to be controversial or, or set out any scare tactics, but it really is a fact. So when you go yes. after these companies... 
Uh, and thank you for letting me say that. Uh, but when you go after these companies, they, they love to go after you back. So I can tell you what I see in clinical uh, practice, which no one can debate, no one can argue, because when you're looking at an N of like a thousand people and those that are really fit and they're exceptional athletes, when they have high sucralose in their diet during a high training session, uh, tra training period of their, their career um, throughout our season, particularly I do a ton of work with Major League Baseball. Um, I try to get these guys off it immediately because they will have truncated immune systems. So what I mean by that is if someone in the locker room has a cold, they're more apt to pick it up than anyone else. So they're going to get it and they're going to get it and they're going to lock onto it. But when they get off that stuff, then it no longer happens. And then they'll ignore me and they'll get back on products like Splenda and sucralose-based products, and then they will have it repeat itself. So anything that is a cause and effect where we can repeat an incidence, which, by the way, is an actual diagnostic criteria for the first way of, of figuring out food allergies or food reactions that doctors can't measure through some type of blood analysis, is does the reaction repeat when you expose the person to it, remove it, does it go away, exposure again, and that happened multiple times, doctors will actually make a diagnosis based on that. So that's why I feel very comfortable when I'll see like a top athlete have a high uh, sucralose diet and then all of a sudden have a terrible immune system, need a lot of medications from their doctors, get off it and be almost, they'll say to me, doc, I'm bionic. And I say, well, then you know what? Stop it. <laughs> Stop eating this garbage. And, and let, me, let me show you how we can, uh, we can try different things that are much better for your body. So it's really immune system suppression that I see, um, disruption of the microbiome. And a lot of people from the other, cat other categories like aspartame, um, they talk about having headaches from a aspartame and acylflame potassium. There's some data on why are these substances found in neurological tissue if they're not supposed to be absorbed? That was a big one um, that was happening. There's a study that was done in 2013 that there were some metabolites of artificial sugars, particularly aspartame, that were found in astrocytes and neurons. And despite intense speculations about any types of carcinogenicity about aspartame, a lot of studies are showing that one of the chemicals that are found in it can actually be stored in the central nervous system. So their studies are coming out and they're being published but it's really not affecting food manufacturing. And sadly, it's not affecting consumer habits. Well, and that's the thing these days, though, is I think we are in it, you know, this is off subject, but we're kind of in an instant gratification society now. And people don't really look at the past and they don't really look at the future. They're just kind of focused on right now. Yep. Um, even though that is going to be heavily affecting their quality of life in the future. Without a doubt. And that's really where my work is heavily based in nutrigenomics so that you can have these conversations with individuals about their future health and their risk factors and perhaps appeal to their logic that you need to change these behaviors because you could hit this path. Like, for example, I can see genetically people who are at risk for osteoarthritis and or hypertension when they're in their mid forties and I'm talking to them and they're in their early twenties and they just signed mm -hmm. a major league baseball contract and they think they're invincible. It's important to know these things so that we can make some changes. But on a flip side, I also work with understanding um, patients and understanding groups of people I work with by studying how well do they genetically taste sugar? That's another conversation. Keep in mm -hmm. mind everything we talked about, is multiple times sweeter than sugar. So what is sugar? 
right? So let's talk about one of the first sweeteners that was banned by the FDA because it absolutely caused cancer. That's known as cyclamate. Um, anyone as old as me and uh, in the listening audience today could know cyclamate was banned by the FDA, caused bladder cancer. Um, it was 45 times sweeter than sucrose, which we opened the, the show talking about how that could be a harmful table sugar. Um, aspartame is 180 times sweeter than table sugar. Saccharin is 300 times sweeter than sugar. And congratulations, uh, Connie, you consumed one of the strongest ones. Sucralose is 600 times stronger in the sweetness and taste of sugar. So that's a level of sweetness that I was just mentioning, that strength of taste. There are people that have a genetic polymorphism, a uh, basically an inborn error of how the gene manifests for how they taste sugar. So they will say they're fighting their willpower and they're trying so hard. And I get to take away their blame and say, please don't blame yourself. You're, you have this genetic polymorphism where you need, you feel like you need to have more sugar to taste the sugar and to actually feel satisfied. It's as if they have a numb um, insulin receptor site. So they need more sugar to feel like they actually got that sweetness um, out of their system. And that's where I think genetics is very valuable because you can differentiate groups. You could see who would fail in a study. You could see who would be more challenging to work with as a patient or a client. And you'd be able to then preach to their, um, to their, their common sense. And it's, it's equivalent. To me, the dialogue is blue eyes and brown eyes, right? There's, there's nothing different between both of them. They both are beautiful and see the same thing. So if someone has this genetic presentation like I do for my celiac disease, we, our job now is to fight against that. That's our job so that you can function optimally. Um, but yeah, congratulations. You drank the strong, one of the strongest tasting ones. <laughs> well, that's, maybe that's why I'm so sweet. <laughs> yes, it is. See? <laughs> that's really good. All right. Well, so what happens when, I mean, obviously you're, you're, you're eating these sweeteners that are much sweeter than normal sugar. Yes. So your taste for it is going to, um, you're going to have an askewed, sense of taste for sugar eventually. Oh, Connie, you're awesome. So what you're doing is you're blowing out your taste receptors. And you are then, when you go to a, and I'll tell you, I, I've actually done this experiment with people that were addicted to aspartame. And I said, do me a favor. You, you and I both know table sugar is terrible. Just do me a favor. Have your coffee with one sugar packet on the, on the table and tell me what you taste. And they would report how yucky it was and how bland it was. So these people then will go into a firestorm and they think they're doing well. I can't even tell you, Connie, how many times I've been like at a, I'm at a cocktail party or I'm at some type of reception after a medical conference. And so will come to me and go, oh, Dr. Pastore, I heard your lecture. I'm off all artificial sweeteners. You'll be so proud of me. Now I just eat natural sugar. <laughs> and I say, how much do you need? Oh, it's funny you say that. I need like three tablespoons of honey to sweeten my tea when I used Whoa. to only need half a teaspoon. So you're blowing out your taste buds. And what I always say to people, one of my favorite things I did after finding out I had celiac disease, and I think it just was a weird thing for me to develop a good relationship with food that I feel is maybe not so weird. I just wanted to know what real food tasted like before I did anything to it. I want my chicken breast before I start the seasons. I want to taste my broccoli. I want to learn it again. And, and I stayed that way with a lot of my food. Like I'm a black coffee guy. I do not put anything in it. I just really enjoy the taste of coffee. Coffee is a health food. 
Um, so I think it's just so, so important to know what our food tastes like. So I really start there. I start by talking to these people and saying, look, let's do everything we can for you to reestablish a relationship to what a real food should taste like. Like one of my, well, you know, please, please. Sorry. Yeah. If you, if you don't mind, I'll interrupt yeah. you right there yeah. because I feel that's another thing we were just talking about the other day. So many people want to see their children satisfied. Mm. And so they start them off from a young age with the sweetest baby food. I mean, if you think about it, we're starting our from babies. We're starting our children off with these sh- these cereals, you know, like mm-hmm. these rice cereals, which is sugar. Yep. These pureed fruits, which is sugar. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think human nature has a tendency us as human beings. We give people what we would like, right? Yep. And yep. so it's hard to want to shovel a spoonful of you know pureed spinach or broccoli into your baby's mouth, you know. But not enough people are doing that now. They're, they're, they're giving them the foods that, that they think would taste good. And I think from a young age, our children's palates are developing completely different than they would if, you know, back in the, in the day when things were more, you know, people were making their own baby foods, for 100%. example. 100%. I agree with you above and beyond 100%. And, and how I raised my own daughter was doing what people normally wouldn't do, but we should do. You know, my daughter mm-hmm. was raised on pureed kale and avocados as opposed to the sweetest thing. Um, she, she still hasn't had, you know, anything that was a fruit. Had, had, she never had fruit juice. Uh, I think one mother gave her a sip and she spit it out and said yucky because it was just way too sweet for her tongue because she adapted to being more of a fan of shoveling fistfuls of cauliflower and she'll do that in the evening. My little girl's a little paleo hunter gatherer. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. I is, love it. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. She thinks candy is yucky, um, which is a very great thing for her scientist father to hear. But be, look, that's that's a loaded gun conversation, though, because I'm the one with the weaponry to be able to instill that. And I don't want parents to feel like they're wrong if they did it a different way. But just so just to echo the main point, you are correct. When we raise our children with the absurd amount of sweetness and the first things they consume are sugars, then we can't wonder why they only want cookies and they only want sweet things because you train their palate that way. And those are the kids that I find notoriously difficult to get into the bitter tasting foods. While you can genetically test that, there are um, tests where you can identify the genes for receiving what is bitter. And yes, you can always conquer in 99% of the times in nutrigenomics, your genes, you know, your, your epigenetics transcribes how that gene will manifest. If you have a high sugar diet, and a genetic manifestation of wanting more sugar, of course you're going to manifest that, but you can also suppress it through good behaviors. Um, But yes, we are starting our culture of sugar addiction from in utero. That's really what I believe. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Yes. Um, So now moving forward, we've kind of covered a couple of the artificial sweeteners here. How about the sugar alcohols? How do you feel about those? Yeah, and this is interesting because I want to really come about this from a scientific perspective. There's the, the, I'll go through a list of them. There's erythritol, there's sorbitol, mannitol, xylitol, maltitol, maltitol syrup, different forms of maltitol. is probably the first one that came out in the 50s. Lactolol, which is really not used very much, and isomalt, which I am seeing more of these days. So what, what are sugar alcohols? Um, they're basically sugars, what's what known as a polyol. Um, that's an organic compound containing multiple hydroxyl groups. And that just means, what is a hydroxyl group? That just means that there's oxygen bound to hydrogen. Um, and they actually naturally occur in foods and they come from plants, 
um, such as fruits that you could find them in birch bark and things that we maybe will not eat. Um, I'd never had birch bark in my diet, but who knows in our listening audience. Um, so, <laughs> so, so those, those are found in very small quantities. And then what we did with food manufacturing, what scientists did, we meaning, you know, scientists in general, us as humans, um, process them to a way where you could use a higher content. So I just wanted to examine those and look at the clinical literature on them. And what I found is they're not completely calorie free. Uh, they can vary from 0.2 calories per gram up to three uh, calories per gram. Um, they also can have different effects on the body and sensitivity from a gastrointestinal threshold perspective where mannitol and maltitol and sorbitol are most notorious for basically being laxatives because they're not digested very effectively and they can pass through the gastrointestinal tract rapidly. And that's something we never want to do. Um, one thing I would say before I get into the most common one, erythritol, is whatever our, uh, alcohol sugar you're using, if you're consuming it to a point where you're having loose stools, immediately stop. Anything that expedites transit time is truncating your absorption window for nutrients. You have a small window in the duodenum, the jejunum, and maybe a tiny bit in the first part of the ileum, ileum, last part of small intestine. The rest, the last part going through the small intestine is just reabsorbing water, and that continues through the colon. Um, so there's very, very small window through di digestive process. You don't want to expedite that with diarrhea because that could result in various deficiency states of key nutrients you should be digesting in your food. Even the protein. Let's say you have a heavy-duty erythritol protein shake, and it's making you have explosive bowel movements. You're not even getting the amino acids in the protein shake you think you're getting to nourish your muscles. So my number one um, critique there is that I feel we're overly focusing on those, again, um, trying to segue away from the natural taste of food and trying to move away from real foods. I do think... Um, these are the safest uh, to use uh, compa when compared to these artificial sweeteners, particularly erythritol, uh, because there's no, it, why am I saying particularly erythritol? It has the lowest calories per gram, uh, and it as so far in clinical literature is not showing insulin spiking, but there is a sweetness, taste, and satisfaction that people who may be sugar addicted are receiving from it. So we're not seeing that type of effect. What we are seeing really is general symptomatology. Um, but I do want to make it clear I'm not seeing data on insulin spikes or anything harmful. Uh, yeah, obviously, everybody's different, but we're not seeing anything um, really bad. I, I actually like xylitol in toothpaste as an ingredient because it's very effective at making the enamel slippery, preventing, mm -hmm. preventing bacteria from adhering to the teeth, preventing dental caries cavities. Which is actually my day job. I am in dentistry. So um, we do use that a lot in dentistry. Um, so I, you know, I follow you on that. Okay. Um, how about um, on your gut, though? Like, how is it safe for people that have digestive, yeah, digestive issues? No. Or, yeah. No, okay. it's really not a great choice. It should be 100% avoided in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is known as SIBO, completely avoided by those that have irritable bowel syndrome, completely avoided by anyone who's trying to follow any type of diet if they have gut abnormalities. This is very well known um, and, and very important to avoid. So it really is a case-by-case -case basis. I'd never go out of my way to recommend them. Um, other mm -hmm. than the aforementioned toothpaste ingredient, I never say you need erythritol in your diet. So I want to make that clear. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard to throw stones at them when compared to the demons. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, that. you know, I just and the reason I brought the sugar alcohols up is because they are the big one that I see um, popular right now with the keto diet yeah. um, that and stevia. And um, so with with that, I know that I feel like a lot of people are, you know, you see all these recipes online now where it's like keto brownies and keto treats and keto, you know, and I think it's fantastic. People are looking to change their dietary habits. However, I feel like junk food is junk food when you start, you know, making all these treats and stuff that are, you know, full of artificial sugar. and stuff. I I agree. I agree. And I think that it goes back to your basis and what you believe in. And I'm, I'm published on it. So I will never run from it. And it's something that I do believe in. I, I went out and studied a hunter gatherer diet on um, a population of individuals that had hypercholesterolemia and they were about to start medication. And I said, hold on, let me sign you up for a year long trial and let me compare you to the American Heart Association. So that, that is published. And that's been in the journal nutrition back in 2000, um, nutrition research back in the uh, 2015, um, mm-hmm. May to be exact. Uh, but it, so, so I'm a huge fan of us eating real whole foods. And I've never been like my program, when I did that clinical study on these individuals, it didn't have, you know, brownies. It didn't have the recipe for cavemen that when they made brownies on the stone in the mountain. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love it. I, you know, we didn't, it didn't include that. And I'm not, and I'm not saying to everyone that that shouldn't be something they do in their diet in moderation, but I do want to make it clear that a lot of the keto people are doing that on a daily basis, if not multiple times a day. And that's when you're really going to get into trouble with these types of sweeteners because they will end up affecting your gut. They're found in nature at a certain level for a certain reason. <laughs> that's why there's not amplified erythritol, you know, in your piece of fruit. You're not going to find a hundred milligrams of that in a, in a tomato. Um, these are found in very, very small quantities. And I'll tell you the one I'm most concerned of, Connie, if I may, is allulose. Interesting. So allulose is actually uh, one of its uh, other names is known as psychose, um, spelled P-S-I-C-O-S-E. Um, and it's also known as D-ribo-2-hexulose, in case you're a scientist out there. And it's referred to as a rare monosaccharide. So while it's been in, in cl- cataloged in clinical textbooks in human nutrition for many, many, many years, that it is extremely rare. It would be found in extremely microscopic amounts in raisins and figs and, and maple syrup. Um, it's about 70% the sweetness of sugar. It's very low calorie. It's at 0.4 calories per gram. Um, it's got like this, if I may be technical, again, it's, it's a C epimer, a C3 epimer of fructose. So if I could just define that. Um, it's a stereoisomer where it's a compound that has the same exact chemical formula as the same atom connectivity, but different in their three-dimensional orientation. So it's a mirror image of something else. So it can mimic fructose, but not be digested. And what I'm concerned with, with this allulose is it's popping up a lot. Um, The FDA revised its labeling requirements only in April of 2019 because it does come from food. So um, they are allowing it. But what I'm seeing happening in, in, um, in patients is it has a massive gastrointestinal negative consequence. So if we ignore all animal studies that look at some infertility issues and we just focus on human trials, I found one study in December of 2018 in the journal Nutrients where this researcher looked at gastrointestinal tolerance to the sweetener allulose. And getting right to the point, the researchers recommended to limit 
0.4 grams per kilograms of body weight um, of this sugar, which it's, by the way, appearing so much more because it causes nausea, gas, bloating, diarrhea, vomiting. And uh, let's just say someone's 120 pounds. That means 21.6 grams would be the single dose limit uh, for someone 120 pounds. Well, guess what? I was in Whole Foods and I saw a bottle of allulose maple syrup and they were claiming no calories. Get your maple syrup, be keto. And one uh, serving size, two tablespoons was 28 grams of allulose. Wow. So I, so I looked at the label. I looked at my wife and I said, you better not be 120 pounds if you buy this. <laughs> you that's crazy Uh. yeah so that's what's happening you know you take the chemistry out of that and then you bring it to the food aisle and you go wow and that's the new keto sugar explosion it's cheap it's heavily processed and it can blow out your gut perfect well i mean that sounds like a good time who doesn't (laughs) want to have some diarrhea i mean no (laughs) Ah, that's that's great if you're an athlete too you know (laughs) Exactly. let's go for a run or bike or you know let's go lift the it's it's leg day at the gym and i have diarrhea no it doesn't sound like a good time doesn't sound like a good time so yeah be really i mean look no no know what you're going getting into that's like regarding these sweeteners know what you're going into and really try to know what your food tastes like you know i've had some one of my dear friends is dr lauren cordain who in my humble opinion started the paleo movement even though he gives credit to you know other papers that he read in the new england journal of medicine in the early 80s but lauren's a dear friend of mine for many many years um, I was there when he wrote his first book. I was the guy who booked him for one of his biggest lectures where he won an award years back when um, I was around 29, 30 years old. Um, so Lauren and I talk about, you know, people don't even know what a real apple tastes like, right? Because everything's so doctored and cross genetics and et cetera. So my, 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 my note to, to the listening audience is please know what your food tastes like and, and try to get an understanding that you may potentially be addicted to a flavoring sensation that was created in a laboratory and not by nature. Well, and that's something my husband and I both tell a lot of people is they're like, well, how do you eat the way you do? And we're like, we enjoy it. It's actually kind of incredible. So I remember when we very, very first started um, our journey, it was, we started on the GAPS diet, actually. So super strict if you haven't heard of it. Um, Anyway, we started on the GAPS diet and the first 30 or 45 days were like pure hell i mean and i thought that i had cooked reasonably healthy for my family but when i removed like even the pasta sauces and and the bread and stuff it was Mm -hmm. crazy i mean we were sitting like a week into it we were sitting at the table my husband goes you know what i wouldn't give for just a hot dog with a (laughs) (laughs) he's like and it was crazy but then it was like weird because all of a sudden there there was like this paradigm shift and and we were sitting at the table and i was like wow this tastes so good you know Mm -hmm. and now we eat whole real food we're like man there is just so much flavor here this tastes so much better than the stuff that you would go buy at a store somewhere you know and and that's that's Thank you, Connie. And that's what I really loved about, um, the, and I just like calling it the paleo movement because I believe that, you know, the, the perfect human diet really is one we evolved on. So I'll leave it at that and I'll duck from stone throwing. But I, <laughs> for me, you can't argue with evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course that all varies and you look at different parts of the world. Look, I, like Lauren, I've restudied 216 hunter-gatherer societies. Like I really put my scientific mind where my mouth was and got down and dirty and rolled up my sleeves and did the work. You know, I didn't use Dr. Google uh, to see what was going on. I, I did the research. I applied the principles to human beings, put them through a clinical trial. But then of course did my, a lot of my research in addition to that with other colleagues. 
Um, and I and I really feel what I loved about the movement was this strong potential to get back to what real food was, period. And going to the grocery store and shopping the perimeter and starting there. And of course, using beautiful plants and herbs to season and flavor your foods. Of course, I love cilantro and I will cook ground chicken with an entire head of cilantro. I think it's fantastic. But that's also a natural food. So I'm, I'm having, I love that relationship and rekindling that, even if it's one meal a week, just mm-hmm. like, you know, let's just get down and dirty and do that. And if someone's having a, a protein shake, why not have the unflavored one and make it flavorful on your own with your own natural ingredients that you normally wouldn't have, right? Like when I make a smoothie for my daughter, there's avocado in it and there's a piece of cooked sweet potato in there and etc. Yeah, that's not, and to me, my mouth, I mean, my, I'm literally, my mouth is watering when you're talking See? about that because exactly. that's something that I am like, I love that stuff. You know, I love adding flavor by using different vegetables and spices and things like that, you know, that's and, and, and that's a lost art now. I mean, your mm-hmm. biggest flavoring ingredient in every, I mean, if you look at the spice aisle or any marinade or anything that's out there, the biggest ingredient is sugar. Correct. You know? Correct. I found sugar in um, chili seasoning powder that was considered to be air quote natural. I found, I actually found sugar in a salt. And that was really mind blowing. So it is in everything. And it goes back to this whole, uh, the whole topic of this show, um, how one, how sugar can be deleterious itself and two, how substitutes can be deleterious, how there's a driving force since we're born and probably before that, in my humble opinion, to consume more sugar and that we really have to check ourselves. And, and if we could focus on that in this new year, um, I think we could make enormous steps to, towards improving human health. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's, you know, and I'm, I'm not some, I'm not, I don't want to consider myself some fitness and food evangelist because I feel like there's there, everybody has a way, you know, and there's a thousand different ways out there and food and religion, I think, and politics are like our three closely related subjects, right? Where people get angry and fired up about them. However, um, I am a believer that we need to get a little bit back to nature And Mm -hmm. things are becoming more and more lab modified and genetically altered. And I mean, half of these companies are, you know, genetically modifying this stuff so that you can't stop eating it because, you know, it's it's a financial uh, thing for them. You know, like they're going to benefit, you know, without a doubt. And the the simplest way is like we keep saying with sugar or anything that tastes like it or something that is 600 times sweeter than it, like the. Uh, sucralose it's it's if you do that you do create addictive type behavior um and and i could tell you from studying human genetics that's exactly what happens because a lot of the polymorphisms are already out there that's a very important piece to this puzzle is the problem already exists and i don't think the companies are ignorant to that it's a great way to introduce addiction and if i may be so bold i feel that it's akin to the tobacco industry of your right of the old days where mm-hmm. that's that's absolutely what i think is is a major risk factor that we're facing on a daily basis is this rush by companies and even in this keto movement pardon me when then someone falls from keto dumb or they fall from doing that and i like you applaud the movement i think that beneficial changes that come in different types of dietary strategies i've seen so many people benefit from a keto diet particularly because the version i was studying was at hopkins where they were actually curing Uh, children from seizure disorders 
So I think there's remarkable science there. But please keep in mind that type of ketogenic diet didn't have 40 grams of allulose in it. And it Absolutely. Right. And it wasn't with 30 grams of erythritol. And as a matter of fact, that would get into trouble because erythritol does have calories. It will add up at a point from a volume perspective. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, you know, that, that's really my, my humble opinion is understanding the foods we eat, understanding the basis behind sugar for our own bodies and our own health and understanding that um, we have a genetic predisposition for desire to consume sweet things to survive as a species and modern marketing and manufacturing is just harping on that weakness. Yeah, and I 100% agree with that. And like, I love your comparison um, about that in the tobacco industry, because they are the same exact alley. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah, there's that there's that built in motivation. We all knew about the nicotinide receptor for years. And we knew that that was actually, you know, had its own names in in neuroscience. When you're studying neuroscience, you are learning about the nicotine receptor. Um, that's remarkable. And it got its name because it could only heavily be fired by that chemical that you would find in tobacco. And then it became, how can we amplify that chemical? So obviously there was a, a means to an end there. And I really believe that's the main basis. Notice none of the artificial sugar companies tried to mimic the exact level of the taste of sugar. So that's clue number one. You know, if I put on my Perry Mason coat and hat, I can then say, well, why did we have to start at 45 times with cyclamate and then go off to the stratosphere? And please note that I stopped at sucralose. We didn't say neotame. How many times sweeter is neotame than, than sugar? How about 13,000 times sweeter? Wow. <laughs> Imagine well, the so taste buds there. <laughs> yeah. In that same argument, you have parents saying, well, I just want to give my child a treat. And this is something, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a really caring person and I want to see people succeed. And I ultimately care about people's health. I'm never, I'm not putting myself first in, in that. However, I'm not afraid to say things like they are. Um, because I think that's important. And I think that people kind of skirt around that these days, but I had a parent recently that was like, well, but my child doesn't want to eat that. They want to eat this chocolate cereal or whatever. And I said, Uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give your child a marijuana cigarette. So why are you giving them that chocolate cereal? Yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's the same thing, you know? I agree with you a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Wow. So, and I mean, it's the truth. It's still a drug. You know, it, you know, it, no matter if it's food and it's legal, it's still a drug, you know, it's a drug for adults. It's a drug for kids. It's a drug for everybody. And so you have to look at it that way. Yes, definitely. I agree with you hundred percent, Connie. Um, so, uh, going back to the sugars though, um, how do you feel about more natural sugars? Let's kind of delve into those. Sure. So we're talking about the ones that basically are in nature and when we have, um, honey, pure maple syrup. Um, as the two main ones, then we go into molasses, uh, and then there's agave nectar, um, which is a highly processed uh, sugar, but it, it is in nature, so we do have to say that. They all end up being highly, pro- highly processed. Um, yeah. We just, and I could start by saying, you know, pure maple syrup, you know, 80% of those basically come from Canada, and they were viewed um, and studied by some researchers looking at their sucrose content and found out their sucrose content, content can range between, I believe the numbers were 51.7%. 
up to around 75.6%. Because like anything in nature, it can change. You know, one avocado can taste different from another. Um, so in, in nature, you'll see these ranges change. And also fructose content could end, range from actually zero up to 9.59%. Um, so this is how I view them. And it could be viewed as controversial, but it really has to do with the, um, the sum of my experiences academically and scientifically and, and really practice what I preach. I feel as a species, we have way too much carbohydrates in our diet, mm -hmm. way too much sugar in our diet. And I feel in the bulk of the population where we're um, between the United States and Canada, more than half the population is overweight to some extent. And that definitely is a concern because there are diseases associated with that. And there's a long list of that. And that's a separate show from that perspective. But it's so important to understand that if that's the problem and sugar is a gateway drug, even natural sugars are extremely harmful. Mm -hmm. Agave nectar contains more fructose than high fructose corn syrup. Honey contains a combination of fructose and glucose. And it has even more fructose than it does glucose. Pure maple syrup is just a huge spike of sugar. Um, everyone can share negative experience with these that are on the, the practitioner side of it. Yourself, I can tell you. I remember trying as a, a young man being diagnosed with celiac disease. Let me try this 100% organic grade B pure maple syrup and just mm -hmm. felt like hell the rest of the day. To me, it's like a poison. Yeah. Um, so I, I really fought hard uh, to try to get my patients and the people I work with to not have these foods in their diet. Mm-hmm. But then understand moderation and understand them adding a little bit here, a little bit there and, and measuring them. It really depends on a case by case basis. Yeah. A lot of patients I'll see are very sick and they have type two diabetes. I don't want them having any honey, any agave, any maple syrup, any anything like that. And, and that's where I'm really in the camp or someone starting to experience Alzheimer's disease or uh, age related mental decline. Anything that spikes insulin exacerbates that problem. Um, so, in, and this is particularly for those that are not fit. It is really, really dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, in people that are that are training and they're really muscular, muscle training and going to the gym and, and training muscles and actually putting the muscle through the process of hypertrophy, um, enlarging the muscle cell, it actually works like a sponge to absorb glucose in the bloodstream. And those people that are muscular, such as yourself, have an advantage on mm -hmm. how they can metabolize glucose and they can definitely get away with more. Um, but I think that the key is less as possible is the best path and know what your risks are uh, to see how much you could consume. And if I had it my way, it would really be zero in 99% of the people that I speak to on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, hey, you make me feel a little bit better because <laughs> out of out of everything, like I have this vice about, you know, needing some kind of little substitute for sugar, I guess, or, you know, for my sweet treat. And so I drink a tablespoon of maple syrup, organic grade A, you know, mm -hmm. maple syrup in my coffee post-training every single day. <laughs> and, you know, and, and really, I, I, and I have, and I, I work with a, a colleague of mine that's a very fit woman that won um, a bodybuilding championship last year, and she's going to defend her title this year, and she will have the same behavior, and I'm fine with that, because when you look at the data on, the, on an individual such as you guys, there's no negative insulin response. There's no exaggerated glucose response. Um, all that is, is, is healthy and normal, and mm -hmm. it's completely, completely different um, than the rest of people in society uh, that are the walking wounded, that, that 
are very sensitive to these types of sugars. So yeah, I would definitely not recommend you stopping your behaviors with your type of fitness and, and health lifestyle. Well, um, but I'm, and- I'm sure you wouldn't recommend that to a morbidly obese no, in his fifties. In exactly. No, no. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and then I guess my justification with it in myself is okay. Um, if I was to be throwing in, even though it's calorie free, so it's tempting, you know, if I was to throw in that sucralose, I mean, it tastes great. Right. Um, but you know, then I'm, I'm going to cause myself more damage because I'm going to be craving sweets for the rest of the day. You know, I'm, my body's going to be like, Oh, I'm low. I'm low. I'm low. Save me. You know? So, um, so my thought is, is, you know, I, unfortunately I am a calorie counter. It's just the nature of the beast in, in my sport. Um, however I suck it up and I eat those calories because the thing is, is I, I would rather enjoy that and be satisfied and satiated with what I'm eating the rest of the day than throw some artificial sweetener at myself. And all I want to eat after that is sugar, sugar, sugar. Yeah. And if that, exactly. So that's a great way of dealing with, if that's something that satisfies your need and you can hit the pause button, that's awesome. And that's the same advice I give to someone who's using erythritol with no consequence, right? They're not having gastrointestinal disturbances. It's not aspartame. It's not, you know, sucralose where you had a horrendous experience. So that, and that's also knowing the individual. And that's what's so important about not following some dogma that's published on the internet that can make you feel bad about yourself. That's Mm -hmm. not right. That's not reality. There's some people that I know that are clinical researchers in the field of metabolomics, like um, is studying how the genes respond and and to glucose and and the obesity. And they can't live without their oatmeal and brown sugar in the morning, but they go out of their way to ameliorate any negative consequence of that brown sugar with their training lifestyle, making sure their calories are under a threshold that prevents them from gaining any weight. And it just makes them happy people. They don't want to do what I do. Like my breakfast today was half an avocado and two really beautiful, dark, beautiful yolks that were so orange. It was incredible. Um, and sauteed uh, mixed super greens. So, and see, again, yeah. that sounds delicious to yeah, me. It's like, I'm, I'm a weirdo. Everyone tells me I'm weird. Usually my breakfasts are basically look like other people's dinner. So, you know, but your taste, I mean, my breakfast, you're going to laugh about this. My breakfast is chicken and sweet potato every day. Oh, so, awesome. That you know, awesome. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not very much sweet potato either. So don't picture yeah. some giant sweet potato. No, it's just no, a little yeah. bit of sweet potato and then chicken. And, you know, I find that that, that is perfect for me. It gives me the fuel I need to get through yep. my workout. And then I got some protein there and I'm happy as a clam, you know. That is, that is perfect. God, you're preaching. That's so, great um, anyhow, so moving into honey, a lot of people... Um, that's an alternative that they kind of go with sometimes when they're trying to avoid processed sugars and things. Um, how do you feel about honey? Well, I mean, look, it's still, it's got more fructose than glucose. So we do have to be very careful with their triglycerides and fatty liver, and they should be monitoring that very closely and have to make sure the triglycerides are quite low. If you want to use regular standards, people who have triglycerides equal to or greater than 130 shouldn't even think about it. Um, in my neck of the woods, I like to see triglycerides well below 100. Um, and of course, their their glucose and insulin should be well within normal ranges before they start dabbling into this. It should be done in extreme moderation. Uh, and again, forgive me for the, the controversy uh, to the audience, but I, I'm a big advocate of not adding these things unless you're someone as fit as Connie. Um, I'm not a big fan of that because I do find in many cases they can 
they could be gateway type um, foods to a more sugary diet. It, it goes back to a celiac disease person cannot have any form of gluten in moderation. A sugar addicted person should not have any honey in, in moderation or any of the sweet uh, natural sweeteners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and you'll notice I say natural with almost a bitter taste in my mouth because they, unless you're going to a beehive and you're going to battle the queen bee and her drones to get the honey, is it really 100% natural? And yeah, I guess you could make the argument, you have to go out and hunt your own, you know, animal to get your food. I actually know doctors that do that mm-hmm. so they can know where their food comes from. Believe it or not, there's some really well-known doctors that are in the low carbohydrate slash hunter-gatherer movement. Um, you know, like 65-year-old cardiologists going out and hunting wild boar uh, just to have the experience of really having that understanding of what and respecting the food that they're eating to nourish their body. Right. And what- So I, I am primarily a firm believer in that. But living in a modern society, um, if the person's chemistry and weight are normal, then I will turn my cheek to them adding honey to their program. Right. Well, and, you know, really, everything is processed. And I tell people that, and I actually need to do an episode on that. I just haven't gotten around to it. Uh, it, Everything is processed. But the thing is, is, you know, I try to get back to, if you know, this is my basic rule of thumb. If you know what it is, then it's probably more okay to eat than something that is, that you don't understand what the name is, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. If there's, if it, if it reads like some of the words I've been using during this podcast, we have a problem. Then you should run, run fast. You should run fast, run to the hills. Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly. and then how about stevia? I know that there's a lot, I mean, it's kind of a newer thing, you know, in the game. And um, there's a lot, not a ton of research on it out there. But so far, my take, as far as what I have looked into it, it seems to be relatively okay, but there are other groups saying no. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm a fan of of stevia and its raw state, and and this was my introduction to it was being in Muskoka, Canada, and actually picking leaves from the stevia plant and consuming the leaves as is, and it was just a remarkable how there could be this akin to my love for cilantro and basil that there could be this plant that grows that can have this sweet type taste to it. And I feel when you keep it as close to that state, there actually is products out there. I'm not endorsing any products, of course, but there's like stevia in the raw or things that are as close to that natural state, how I experienced it in Canada, um, I think can be beneficial from a standpoint of safety and from enjoying the taste that is um, akin to sugar and maybe helping people with sweet teeth. There's no studies that I'm aware of. And I did a very deep dive into this years back of raising insulin, disrupting um, any type of metabolic parameters um, inside humans. It has been approved in many, many countries for a food additive for years. And in my humble opinion, it was delayed in its approval in the States because there was a lobbyist group from aspartame, sucralose, the sugar board uh, to prevent that. So I do think that there's enough data at this moment in time uh, that it is something that can be consumed safely in moderation. I do think it should be consumed in moderation. I do have a fear that if you're putting a gallon of stevia on everything, is it disrupting your taste of the food you're trying to doctor with it? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to my mantra of know what your food tastes like. But I do think it's it's in the it's in the field of being more benign. And then right after that would be monk fruit. 
um, which seems to also uh, have some decent um, research behind it, uh, where it's been native to southern China and northern Thailand. And if you have it in that raw form, how it grows in nature, it, it really seems to um, be something that is not extremely harmful. Um, and so, you know, touching on that, though, uh, there are a lot of people, and I see posts like this, they're like, oh, stevia, or there's that new, what is it, Lanco monk fruit stuff, you yep. buy it, like Costco. You need to, regardless of what it says on the front label, you need to read the ingredients, because yes. the first ingredient in the monk fruit that is by that one brand, I don't know, it, it, it says erythritol. Correct. And that's when someone will start blaming the side effects that they had gastrointestinal wise on monk fruit because it's on the front of the package, but it actually was the erythritol or I've seen stevia and allulose blended together. Um, there's companies, there's actually um, a company out there right now that's doing stevia plus sugar. Then there's a company that's doing, I actually think it's the parent company of sucralose, believe it or not, they're doing stevia plus sugar. And then there's a company doing Splenda plus stevia. So yes, you really have to be a food sleuth and read the labels of what you're consuming to know it's really what it is that you're having. And it's as, as close as you could get to the form that it is. Like you just said before, you know what it is. Like when you turn over the label, it says ingredients, yep. stevia, you know, milled stevia, you know, contains Reb A, Reb B, Reb C, whatever, even if it just says some information about the plant as the single primary ingredient, maybe they're going to have some milling agent in it um, that that's natural. Who knows which one that could, is? It could be silica, which is a mineral, and we shouldn't run from that because it's found in our environment. It's in your water supply right now. But they use that just for part of the processing to get it in a packet from the field to a packet. That that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. when, you see a, when you see a different named ingredient, that's the first ingredient, that's weird. I know a lot and, of a lot of stevias, they their first ingredient is dextrose, I had noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and as we talked about, that's sugar. Yep. And you'll say, well, wait a minute. But it says that it has zero calories. Well, then that's another food tactic. If a, an ingredient is less than a gram or less than a calorie per serving, no matter how low you set the serving size, according to the FDA, you don't have to list it. So if I want to make, you and I, Connie, want to make a keto junk food that contains hydrogenated oil, and you and I just go, you know what? We don't care. We went crazy. We just want to make money. So we're going to make a keto donut that contains hydrogenated oil. If you and I make a small enough donut that contains less than one gram of fat, we can prove to the FDA that it doesn't need to be listed on the label, and that's legal. So you and I can list zero trans fats, but right in our label ingredients, it'll say hydrogenated soybean oil or hydrogenated palm oil. We can get away with it as long as our serving size is less than one calorie. So then the irony is then you're showing, oh, my goodness, the calories, the, the serving size is so small, you can eat like 10 of them. Mm -hmm. And now you're getting enough trans fatty acids to block an artery. And it's the same thing with sugar. So they could put dextrose as the first ingredient. Um, I actually think it's Starbucks that does that. They have a stevia product mm -hmm. that has dextrose in it that I believe if you have like two packets, it's very close to the, the amount of calories you get in half a teaspoon of sugar. Yeah, I think so you are what, right because I look at what's this. What's the point? Wow, yeah. I think it was last fall I noticed that. 
Yeah, and it's what's the point, right? So yeah, exactly. So really read your labels, know what we're talking about. When Connie was making her sweet potato and chicken breakfast, I promise you the ingredient list wasn't long on both those items. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. I'm pretty sure it said chicken and I'm pretty sure it said sweet potato. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. So is there any ones that we miss on top of that or did we pretty much hit them all? Yeah, I think we hit them all. There's nothing else um, that's on my radar uh, that's out there that's brand new. No, that was really it. There was the main new ones I'm seeing now are different types of stevia, monk fruit, erythritol in bulk. Um, xylitol has really been falling by the wayside because of so much gastrointestinal complaints. And allulose, put, definitely put that on your radar. It's the big, big, big thing right now on the radar is, is allulose. You're going to see a lot of products with that over 2020. Awesome. Well, that's a good note because I actually honestly had not heard of that. So um, it's on my radar now though, thanks to you. So I appreciate awesome. that. Um, so it, I guess we will kind of wrap this up if you don't have anything to add yeah. about, no, I mean, if somebody, your biggest thing, if somebody is just starting their health journey, what is the number one thing you would recommend sugar and carbohydrate wise that what change they make i think the number one yeah is you know believe it or not connie please don't laugh at me but it's the first thing i would say is please go out and make it a pleasurable experience go to a great bookstore buy a really awesome journal a blank journal and please write down and record openly and honestly your sugar and carbohydrate habits Sometimes when people are confronted with what they're doing in their own words in writing, they're, they're in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, and, and do this in the privacy of your own home. Don't do this in a trainer's office, a doctor's office, anything like that. Because one of the things that's notoriously been reported in clinical literature is the lies that are identified in food, in, um, food reporting diet journals to doctors in the doctor's office. Sit mm-hmm. down and be really honest. What is the serving size of sugar? How much are you consuming? Look up. There's wonderful, great scales on how many grams of sugar are found in what you're eating and be really aware of it. And I think that's step one is knowing you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, then we start by saying, how can I start removing these things from my diet? And your first step should be in the processed foods and the simple sugars and the artificial sweeteners, and then start making your battle plan from there. But that's number one, is actually acknowledging you have a problem. Just running out and trying something, that's going to last as much as most New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, you know, I'm so happy that to hear you say this, because um, like I said, I'm a, I, I want to actually help people. And I, I you know, I almost I mean, I'm such a small person, but it's like, I want to start a health movement here, you know, Uh, but I actually want to help people. And so the first thing I do when somebody approaches me about um, changing their diet is I have them grab a journal and start writing exactly like you, er, you know, everything that they're eating, because I want, I need to know that in order to effectively coach them as well. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, Um, I can't just as a coach, throw this calorie number and this, you know, macronutrient Mm -hmm. number or whatever, and then, you know, be like, oh yeah, here's what you need. Because you don't know until you know what that person has been eating, 
you know. Um, exactly. And the challenge they're in. Yeah. Right. If someone you it's really this type of exercise is amazing. You see major swings uh, in the pendulum of how much sugar people are consuming mm-hmm. and other things, of course. And I, today's topic is sugar. So I'm going to really jump all over that. Yeah. Um, but but it's remarkable. You And then you can give them some interesting math and you could say it's this many tablespoons you're having in a year. Mm-hmm. Those those types of pictures are phenomenal. Um, take home messages. My athletes would love that when I would say, wow, you had this many Gatorades, this many different types of sugary donuts. And then this is how much pounds you ate this month. And they look at me and go month. Oh my goodness. And it blows their mind. And um, you're going to hit the wall. I don't care how fit you are. Mm -hmm. You did not evolve to consume that much glucose. No, your, your, your glut one and glut four receptors, the family of facilitative transporters that allow insulin to let sugar in. Remember insulin has to have the right key for the lock. So insulin starts losing its keys and starts getting old and doesn't remember how to get in the door of the cell wall. And then you have this circulating increase in insulin and glucose, no matter how fit you are, your time's coming if you don't start looking at your glucose and, and your, your processed carbohydrates. Uh, yes, I 100% agree with that. And so, you know, as trying to be individual and actually help people, that is one of the services I started offering was, hey, I will take you shopping. We will look at things in the store. We will read That's ingredient awesome. labels. We will do this together. So you have a firm understanding of things that are healthy and things that are not and then how they affect your body, you know. So, so, crucial. Um, and, so crucial. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are coaching people, um, you know, and giving them these plans, but they're not telling them why. So how can they help themselves in the future, you know, if they don't know why? So, you know, exactly. that's, a, that's a very important thing. But uh, Absolutely, anyway, Absolutely. well, I'm so, so thankful you came on today to chat with me. I heavily appreciate it. Um, it's my pleasure. Uh, you have been fantastic. And so maybe someday we'll pick up on a different subject and we'll go for it. Okay. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much, Connie. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. you have a fantastic day. You too. Bye bye. Take care now. Bye. All right, so that about sums it up for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed um, hearing Dr. Pastori talk about sugar and its effects on our body. Um, And it helps you make better informed decisions about the choices you decide to make in your day-to-day life with your own diet. So I hope that that was helpful for you today. If you like today's podcast, please, please, please share it with your friends. Sharing is caring and it helps get this information out there to others so they can also make informed decisions. So if you can go and hit that subscribe button, that would really help me out. And then also if you could share it, share it in your Instagram stories, share it on your Facebook, it would be heavily appreciated. Um, And also I will put Dr. Pastore's information in the show notes so that you can look him up or get in contact with him if you have any questions. His website is pretty easy. It's drrobertpistori.com, um, which I will make sure and put in those show notes. And he's also on Instagram, so I can put that in there as well. Um, thank you so, so much for tuning in. If you have any questions, I am Connie Bigani. I can be found on Instagram at Connie Bigani which is C-O-N-N-I-E-B-E-G-O-N-N-I-E. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. We will see you next week.